Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. So it's been quite a while since we touched on COVID-19 here on the podcast. Yeah, things were sort of stable for a while. I mean, bad, but stable. (laughs) Bad, but stable is right. Um, But now it looks like the U.S. is really days away from obtaining FDA approval on a COVID vaccine, which is already being distributed in Europe. And so I think that it's important for us to revisit this and talk a little bit specifically about the vaccine and then possibly touch on a few listener questions at the end about COVID in general. Are you okay, Dr. Dean, with us going into a little bit of details on the COVID vaccine and me interviewing you to answer some of these questions? Absolutely. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of new information coming out all the time related to the COVID vaccines. Right. I mean, I just want to touch on this Operation Warp Speed for developing the COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember us in the very beginning talking about how long vaccine development usually takes. And Mm -hmm. it really has been a very impressive process, at least to someone who on the outside who doesn't know as much about vaccines as you do. So I hope I was hoping you could just reflect on your thoughts about this, like where we were in, you know, February, March, April and where we are now. So normally it takes about seven to 10 years to develop a new vaccine with all the studies that are done. And I think I previously mentioned I had a was very small way helped with development of Ebola vaccine. And that was in 2014 that there was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And so there was this worldwide effort, really concentrated effort to develop Ebola vaccine. And then five years later in 2019, when the Ebola vaccine was first licensed, people celebrated the rapid speed that that was developed, five years. Mm-hmm. Well, now these COVID vaccines, really, they were first started work on these in, in January. Um, and we've got the first use in the UK starting yesterday. Um, and then in the US very soon, there's already one in place in China and um, in Russia, um, there's a vaccine that's available too. So it's really been an amazing speed of development of these vaccines. Right. And of course, because of the speed of development, some people are nervous to sign up to to take the vaccine. Um, Mm -hmm. After looking at the studies, are you confident in the safety of these vaccines? So in the U.S., of course, we rely on the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And so I think one of the issues is that the FDA needs to be very transparent with their review of these vaccines so that we all have confidence in them. In the UK, it's a little bit different. So they license vaccines on the basis of the manufacturer summarizing the information and submitting that. And that's why it was a quicker approval in the UK. In the US, the FDA needs access to the raw data, and they do their own independent analysis of the raw data. So it takes a little bit longer to do that. So what, of course, we'd like to see is the FDA do that analysis, share that raw data with the medical uh, community and the public, um, so that people know that this process is open, it's transparent, and that they do have trust in these vaccines when when they're FDA approved. 
Right. So can you just briefly, I know this is like what you spent your whole fellowship learning, but (laughs) just briefly remind listeners how vaccines work and why we get vaccines. So um, the reason that you give somebody a vaccine is to avoid the disease, and there are several different strategies to doing this. Um, In the case of the COVID vaccines, um, you're giving people either part of the pathogen, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, or we're giving them the messenger RNA vaccines give a small fragment of the genetic code that codes for the spike protein. And then when you give that to somebody, then our own bodies manufacture that small part of the spike protein. And then we have an immune response to that. And the immune response, we hope that that immune response is enough so that we, if we get exposed to the pathogen in the real world, that it will fight off infection, that we will be immune without actually having to have the illness to achieve that immunity. Okay, perfect. So you talked a little bit about the types of vaccines, or you started mm-hmm. to. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are currently five different manufacturers that have phase three trials going on, so are close to distributing a vaccine. And there are different types of vaccines, like you mentioned, the mRNA mm-hmm. vaccine, the protein-based vaccine, and a vector-based vaccine. And it seems like, at least for us, the mRNA vaccine, which Pfizer developed, is the closest coming to our institution. And a lot of people have concerns about mRNA vaccines because, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this the first mRNA vaccine that's been successful? Yeah, so they haven't been widely used. These have been under development for years. And the idea behind these vaccines, both the the messenger, the mRNA vaccines, and the Oxford-AstraZeneca adenovirus platform is that they developed these platforms for vaccination um, with the idea that if we really needed to get a vaccine developed very quickly, like, for example, if there was a pandemic, that these were kind of plug-and-play platforms, that you would have this platform pre-developed, and when this new pathogen was identified, you would just plug the part in there that you needed to be in the vaccine, and then you'd be rapidly be able to scale up manufacture, rather than the traditional vaccines, which take much longer to develop, and you'd basically have to build a manufacturing plant from the ground up. So this was a way to really rapidly scale up production of vaccines, and they've been proven in small studies to be effective. And that's why when this pandemic occurred, they were chosen as the quickest way to um, try to achieve immunity to address this pandemic. But they have not been widely used until this pandemic. Right. And a lot of people that don't have backgrounds necessarily in science or may hear the RNA and they think DNA. And they think that this vaccine is going to somehow alter their DNA or or change things. And that's not the case, correct? Yeah, no, they, they can't do that. No, it's a small fragment of messenger RNA. What messenger RNA is, is once we, we get the vaccine, the messenger RNA is taken up by our cells and it's transcribed. It's genetic code, which is transcribed. And the fragment of messenger RNA that's in the vaccine encodes for part of the spike protein. So our own cells will make part of the spike protein and then present this to immune cells. And then our immune cells will evaluate the spike protein fragment 
and develop an immune response to that. And so it's really quite an elegant way of making a vaccine. And there's no, it doesn't alter our DNA. It doesn't stay with us forever. It doesn't get transcribed forever. It has a very limited life within us. And then it's degraded. Can people get COVID from the COVID vaccine? There is no way that you can get COVID from the vaccine. The only thing that the COVID vaccines have is this small fragment of the spike protein. It doesn't cause COVID. It doesn't cause disease. It's the part that we need to be immune to because that's the part that attaches to a receptor that we all have that is the initial form of infection. Um, So that's how the initial infection occurs. So if we get immunity to that part, it can prevent infection. So tell me about the initial studies and what the big side effects were and if there were any more rare side effects that people should be concerned about. So with the two vaccines that are farthest along are the um, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and then the Moderna vaccine. And they're similar vaccine. They They do have differences, but they are very similar. And both of them seem to be well tolerated. They do cause pain at the injection site for a day or two. They may result in fever in about 15 or 16 percent of recipients. And people with fever then may have fatigue. So for some people, it does interfere with their activities. So they might not go to work the next day, like having a very mild case of the flu or something like that. But for most people, it's very temporary, these side effects, and they do go away in a day or two. And so far no big delayed side effects. So the people that were in the early early studies aren't we're not seeing things down the line that they're they're showing. No, the FDA has said that they they want to have safety follow-up for at least two months before they would consider um, releasing these vaccines to look for any possible delayed side effects. Almost all delayed side effects would occur um, for, for these types of vaccine. You'd expect them in the first week or so. So I think two months is certainly an adequate period of time to wait. The two months, the reason that that was chosen was it takes a few weeks to develop uh, the optimal immune response after receiving the vaccine. So the two-month follow-up would also detect any kind of cross-reaction that you might get with the immunity that develops. I see. Let's briefly explain the distribution scheme for who's going to be immunized first. I know that there's obviously going to be nuances and the number of vaccines will play into this. Um, What do you know right now in terms of, of that distribution? Yeah, so the CDC has not finalized recommendations yet, but in the U.S., it's the Center for Disease Control, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices that provides guidance to the states, and then the states provide guidance to the hospitals and other administrators of vaccine um, in those states. So the um, CDC has said that the phase one includes the first, the jumpstart phase is phase 1A, and those would be high-risk healthcare workers, as well as first responders. And then 1B is people of all ages with any kind of underlying condition that puts them at higher risk of severe disease and older adults who are living in congregate or overcrowded settings. And that latter one I'd just like to highlight. So in the U.S., older adults who lived in skilled nursing facilities, they they count for about 6% of the cases, but 39% of the deaths in the U.S. So clearly disproportionately affected. So that's a very high priority um, population that we really want to make sure is immune. Definitely. And going into this, um, 
of course, a lot of our listeners are young parents or, or caregivers. And I just was wondering, kids initially were not included in this vaccine study. And so are there currently any studies that are going on looking at the safety in children? And also, how about pregnant women? Yeah, so the initial studies excluded pregnant women and just included adults. Both Pfizer um, and Moderna, I believe, has started now studying um, children 12 to 18 years of age. And I'm not aware of any younger children being studied yet, but I am aware of there are several discussions about vaccine studies in younger children also. Um, Remember, the idea behind vaccination is not just to protect individuals, but we want to achieve a level of herd immunity to decrease community transmission so that we don't have to social distance and wear masks all the time Mm -hmm. in public. And we can go back to doing a lot of the activities that we enjoyed before, which often involved crowds. So we need a high level of community immunity. And so that would include having children be immune also. Definitely. One thing with some of these vaccines is that there's going to be two doses required. Is that correct? Yes. So all three of the vaccines that we've specifically mentioned that are going to likely be licensed first in the Western world, so the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Oxford-AstraZeneca, those are all two-dose series. So getting one dose at time zero, and then the second dose at three to four weeks later. The studies suggest that there is some immunity that's achieved after the first dose, but the second dose is likely necessary for optimal immunity and longer-term immunity. Okay. And do we have any idea how long we anticipate immunity that's achieved from the vaccine to last? Obviously, we need studies for that. These vaccines (laughs) have just started being studied, and it looks like they have Um, They achieve very strong immunity. It looks like it will last a while, but we need to follow the immune levels over time to really know how long this will last. So we're not sure if this is going to last a year, a few years, 10 years, um, if we're going to need boosters or not. Those are all questions that, that we need to answer. Definitely. So I signed up hopefully here at our institution to get my first dose of the COVID vaccine when it becomes available. So let's say I get the vaccine in a month. Mm-hmm. At that point, do I still have to wear my mask around all the time? Yes, you still have to wear <laughs> your mask because there's too much COVID that's going around. Um, we don't know how long it'll be before you achieve immunity. We don't think that there's going to be 100% of recipients are going to be immune. And so I anticipate until we get a very high level of immunity in the whole community, um, that we're still going to have the masking and social distancing recommendations in place. Okay, that's what I figured. My last question for you about the vaccine is it seems like everyone has their own threshold for when they feel like they will be comfortable getting it. Mm -hmm. So for some, it's like, I'll get the vaccine when Dr. Fauci says it's safe to get the vaccine Mm -hmm. and has looked at the evidence. What is that threshold for you? Well, mine is similar. Like, I, I would never just say yes, that I will accept any vaccine unless I know the data. And so the, all the data that's been released from the phase three studies has been by press release. 
Um, there's been some fu- published um, phase two studies. These are the studies that have like 80 or 100 adults. Um, but I want to see the results from the large, the 20 to 30 to 40,000 study subjects in the large phase three studies. So I assume those will come out in the next few days in a more scientific fashion once the FDA reviews that. I want to see the FDA recommendations, and I want to see the CDC, the ACIP recommendations first before I would agree to anything. I anticipate that I will agree to, and that I will want to be vaccinated, but I do want to see the data first, and I do want to see those recommendations come out first. Perfect. Well, we always appreciate your expertise and keeping us all informed about this. So thank you very much, Dr. Dean. We have also gotten a few um, listener questions about COVID that we briefly wanted to touch on. Hi, Dr. Dean. I wanted to know what the difference is between wearing an N95 mask and a fabric mask in terms of COVID protection. So um, what we know is that the N95 masks are very well studied, they're standardized, and they they provide at least 95% protection. So they protect against the droplets as well as the smaller potential aerosolized particles. So they work very well. The issue with the cloth masks is that they are not well standardized. They likely provide some protection against droplet transmission. So if we look at the standard surgical style masks, those are the rectangular masks that healthcare workers use, we know that they protect about um, 70% of the time against infection. So maybe they protect about the same. I don't know. Since the surgical masks are standardized, that's what I wear because I get them because I go to the hospital and I get a surgical mask when I walk in the hospital. So I I prefer that because they're well standardized, but the cloth masks also probably provide some protection since they're not standardized in terms of materials or fit or style. We're not exactly sure how well they protect. Hi, Dr. Dean. My son is in remote learning, but the school's having the kids come to campus to have their pictures taken. They're going to come into a medium-sized cafeteria space The photographer and the teachers who are helping will be in masks, but when the kids sit down to have their pictures taken, they have to take their masks off. Is this safe and should we do it? Thank you for answering. And what a great question this listener had about school photos, because that is something that you mean may seem like a low-risk activity. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Dr. Dean? So the issue is that we know we want to minimize people interacting from outside their households indoors, especially if they're not masking. However, this setup does sound pretty good, right? Because people are masked and then they go into a room and then hopefully the photographer is masked. And then in addition, let's have the photographer be at least six feet away from the child. So if the child takes off their masks, there should be very little risk to the child from getting infected from the photographer um, or from the photographer, since they're distant from the child, being infected from the, the, the child too. Um, And then if the children go into the room one at a time, we don't expect the virus to linger in the air in that room. So this this sounds like a very safe setup to allow children to have some of their traditions. And we know that so many traditions have been disrupted during the pandemic. So it's nice that they've been thoughtful about that. Yeah, even better, they could do it outside. And, you know, those photos could still be beautiful. 
outside would be great too. <laughs> Everything in the COVID era safer outside compared to inside. <laughs> yes. Um, and then the last thing we had was about contact tracing. Um, and we wanted to discuss briefly a new app that's going to be available here in California where we practice. It's called CA or California Notify, and it can be downloaded on your smart device. It's being released tomorrow, which here is going to be December 10th, 2020. And it was uh, um, developed here at University of California, um, where Dr. Dean and I are employed, um, along with Apple and Google, which, of course, are some big tech giants that are here in California as well. And this is a new app that is going to um, notify Californians who decide to opt in and download this app on their device um, if they have had exposure to someone that has tested positive for COVID-19 and identifies themselves. Of course, some people have concerns about privacy, and this is voluntary and completely free, and it is actually designed to protect your privacy, so it does not use your device location, um, it does not share your identity with others, and if you have um, questions about this app or want more information, we can post that on our website. Yeah, we'll post a link to that on our website, and so I know that a lot of people do have privacy concerns with any of the contact tracing that have um, come up, and some of these are app-based. Um, so that's something that, you know, get your questions answered. We want people to be comfortable with that, and we also want to do everything we can to decrease transmission. That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. 